You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Hi, this is John Hunter, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have John Hunter. He's the author of Maps and Legends, the story of REM. John, how are you? I'm good, Tony. How are you? I'm good. I'm talking with an REM expert. We were just <laughs> we were just chatting about uh, where you live now and um, how it's similar to Athens. Uh, I live in Oxford, Mississippi, which you know is another SEC college town. So yeah, in a lot of respects, it's similar to what Athens was like when I lived there in the '80s. You know, I guess. So uh, you so so you lived in Athens pretty much at the height of its like music i mean because who was coming out of there the b-52s rem well i wouldn't say that i was a little bit younger than that whole first wave of people i didn't get to athens until 1986 oh, okay. and i was eight i was 18 so i i missed that whole first wave of the b-52s and pylon love tractor although a lot of those people were still around when i got there in the mid 80s uh, i was not there you know, when all those groups were starting out. So I was there from 86 to 91, roughly. So that's when I lived there. Did you go there for college? I did. Uh, I went there in part because I was, you know, I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina and had seen REM uh, come through north carolina several times and there was a rich music scene in north carolina at that time with the connells what's active the dbs uh i was going to clubs in raleigh as a teenager to see bands like who's could do and uh the replacements and groups like that um i went to athens in part because of the music scene and all that and i touch on that in the book that lots of people did that but also i had a my best friend was visiting athens because his father had gone to the university of georgia so he was interested in it for that reason and i tagged along with him on one of his visits and uh i kind of wanted to get away from north carolina at the time so there was there was a mixture of reasons but i i did end up in athens in 1986 so because of, so let me wrap my brain around this b52s and rem essentially were selling points to go to college in athens is that what I'm hearing? Uh, 100%. Yeah, I mean, that's, wow. that's definitely, well, I mean, there are other, you know, I, I grew up watching the Atlanta Braves on TV and was into that. You know, there were, there were a lot of things that were attractive about Georgia, but in one of the chapters of my book, I write about uh, my friend Jay Coyle who moved to Athens from Rochester, New York around the same time I did. And, you know, he explicitly uh, 100% went to college in Athens because of REM. And another thing I touch on is that Matthew Sweet, the musician uh, who later became famous for that song, Girlfriend, uh, you know, he moved to Athens explicitly because REM were there. I and mean, I think that was a, a real thing in the, in the eighties. When, when you're growing up in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, um, are are you kind of an outcast because of the music you like? Because I, I remember the '80s was uh, very um, 
very tribal. If you like, if you liked ska, you didn't like, well, where I grew up in a sad suburb of San Francisco, it's like you had your own little niche. And then people who like, they didn't understand that you would know these other, who are those other bands? We're listening to Def Leppard, man. Well, I mean, I guess it was fairly complicated. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I was an outcast. I wasn't the most popular person in high school, I don't think, but I wasn't, you know, an outcast either. But, you know, I was like, I was born in 1968. And like everybody else who was born at that time, I grew up listening to the radio. And by the time I was 12, around 1980, I liked Tom Petty and Forner and all the stuff, you know, that was on the radio at that time. Yes, yeah, which like is partly stuff. embarrassing, but but the, as I go back, it's partly great. Like Tom yeah, Petty I'm, and Foreigner did some good stuff. Yeah, I mean, I liked Hart, Tom Petty, Foreigner, yeah. The Pretenders, all that stuff, and I still do. But a few years later, as I began to you know enter my teenage years, I did discover you know REM and the Smiths and uh, Big Country and the Alarm and U2 and Echo and the Bunny Men and New Order. Oh, and you're you're, you're 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 hitting all of my heart spots. Like you're you're just you're bringing puberty back to me vis viscerally. <laughs> that stuff wasn't super popular in my high school. I had a group of you know four or five friends, yeah, who were also interested in that kind of music. And uh, you know, none of those groups when I was in high school were ultra popular. But there were definitely other kids I knew who were into that and. How did you find these groups? Because these groups were not really being played on radio at the time. Well, uh, you know, again, I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina, and there was this incredible radio station there called WQDR 93.7 FM. And uh, my mother had this incredible record collection from the 60s with all the Beatles, Stones, Bob Dylan. So I grew up listening to all that, her records. And then WQDR was just this incredible freeform radio station where you know the djs would do things in the mid 70s like play a whole album side of whoever oh i i remember those you know, days i have cassette tapes still of yeah. full albums that djs play yeah or they would play a 45 minute set of one artist you know i think yeah. they jumped on bruce they were big bruce springsteen advocates before born to run came out they would play 45 minutes of bruce stuff before he became a star you know it was just that kind of radio station and when R.E.M. came along, they played R.E.M. from the get go, I mean, in part because they even in the early 80s, they still had this sort of lingering free form. The DJ can play whatever they want to play ethos from the 70s, but also because there was a local connection that uh, Murmur and Reckoning recorded in Charlotte, North Carolina at Reflection Sound Studios and R.E.M., the first place they played outside of uh Athens was Carborough Chapel Hill. And then they played in Raleigh, Greensboro. North Carolina was almost like their home away from home. Mm -hmm. uh, and they recorded their first two albums there. So there was this huge North Carolina connection they had, and you could hear them on the real radio, not just college radio. I didn't hear them on college radio. I heard them on WQDR, which was the mainstream FM station, which was playing radio for Europe from the moment it came out. Yeah, so I, we had a similar radio station in San Francisco that died, I think, in eight, 1985. Uh, and it was kind of the, and it would play Radio Free Europe. So I was familiar with that. Mm -hmm. But um, but then that station died and was taken over. And then there was kind of like a top 40 alternative 
but but at the other end of the dial we all found college radio it was like some people went to most people went to the top 40 alternative and a good handful of us we didn't realize there's like five college radio stations in the bay area and then that's when my mind was completely blown when i'm like wait a second we're listening to rem and then what is this a few years later you know and then I guess when I heard R.E.M., I got really interested in and There was also, I don't know if you remember them, there's a band called the Connells from Raleigh. Do you recall them at all? It doesn't, it doesn't ring a bell, no. Uh, well, they were a fantastic, I guess for lack of a better term, college radio band from Raleigh. And I started going to their shows at local clubs when I was about 16. I saw their placements uh, in Chapel Hill when I was 15 or 16. Oh, good time to see them. Was that before um, Pleased to Meet Me or is that? That was between Let It Be and Tim was the first time I saw them. (laughs) Oh, damn. So, you know, I started, I got so into this music. And at that time, I think, I was 16 and North Carolina had just raised the drinking age from 18 to 19. If I recall correctly, it wasn't hadn't yet been raised to 21. But one thing I sort of quickly discovered was that no one really cared, you know, for better, or for worse in 1985, 86. If you're a teenager and you wanted to go to these clubs and see these bands, you could. It was. Oh, my. That's that's very nice. You know, yeah. but uh, we could in San Francisco. In hindsight, you know, I don't know if that was the best thing to be hanging out in these clubs when I was 16, but I I was. And it it was kind of like, you know, there were certain gas stations that if you had money, they would sell you beer or whatever. That's Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's more or less what going to the clubs was like in the 80s. You know, I went to see Black Flag, Who's Could Do, The Replacements, all those bands when I was a teenager. and. Yeah. uh, you know, for better or for worse, they let me in. So I, I kind of uh, got to see a lot of those groups when I was pretty young and impressionable. Well, what, yeah, what I, it's, it used to drive me nuts that I couldn't get into clubs that were over 21. And it's just all these bands were playing that I wanted to see. And it just, and I had to wait until I was 21. I couldn't like figure out a fake ID or anything. And they were pretty strict about it, but. Well, a lot of those bands did do all ages shows. You know, mm-hmm. I know Black Flag, I think we're big on that. And one of the things I noticed in researching the book was in their hometown of Athens, REM would occasionally play a tea night at a local club because they were aware that there were younger people that couldn't get in to see them. So there was that option in the 80s. But a lot of those shows, they were not all ages shows. They were, you know, adult shows. Uh and at first, I just told the door person, look, I'm not going to drink. I just want to see the band. And that was largely true. I really didn't drink a lot in high school. So, you know, I think once they realized that I wasn't there to drink, I was there to see the music, they would let me in. And then I started to make friends with some people who worked there and, you know, people in the lack of a better word scene. So I was able to go to all these concerts when I was 16, uh, which, you know, in hindsight was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and your and your parents let you out uh, to go see those shows. That that's pretty lenient uh, parents. Well, it's I guess it's a complicated story. I guess my parents were divorced, like a lot of kids of that era. And and uh, to be honest, my dad just wasn't there wasn't a real tight leash. <laughs> that's it's cool. Not, <laughs> it's not like I was a bad kid, but yeah. For one year of, of that, I was at a 
the North Carolina School of Science and Math in Durham. And uh, that was like a residential boarding high school. And I remember literally like sneaking out the fire escape to go see their placements in Chapel Hill that night. You know, that that was what I had to do to go see that show, you know, climb out a window. Yeah. Uh, so that's what was going on then, I guess. As a fanboy, do you re- do you remember the first time you got to talk with one of these? Uh, like, who was the first musician you met that kind of like your heart almost stopped and you went, oh, my God, I just talked to that guy? Uh, well, that was another thing about, I guess, the music scene at that time is these people were very approachable. I remember talking to Bob Mould of Husker Du after I saw them probably in 85. Yeah. You know, he, he had played to 150, 200 people and after the show they'd hang around and you could go up and talk to these people, you know, uh, it, it was, uh, you know, music had gotten. So I guess this would be the critique of punk rock, you know, again, talking about liking kind of mainstream stuff. You know, I remember when I was like 12 in 1980, I had older friends who would go see the police and they would be playing like the Greensboro Coliseum or whatever. And that was thousands of people and you were never going to meet the police. I didn't, I was mm-hmm. too young to go to those shows, but, when I started going to concerts, I wasn't going to see Foreigner at the arena. I was going to see Who's Do at the brewery in Raleigh. And like I said, there were a couple hundred people there at most. And a lot of times the bands would hang around and talk to you. So it was, you know, I guess like any scene, whether it's people who are lucky enough to see the Beatles at the Cavern or whatever, when the scene is at such a low level, it's these people are, are very approachable. Oh, interesting. I remember because <clears throat> when I saw Fishbone, and I like when I got that first record of Fishbone, I just went nuts because I was like, what is this? This changes my life. And um, the second time I saw Fishbone, I, the lead singer, Angela, was outside. And it just, I was just like, oh, my God, what do I do? And then I was like, I have to just say hi to him. And I was so scared to say hi to him. And I said, hi, I really like the show. And, I, and he shook my hand. He said, thank you. And I just yeah. kind of like walked away like, I don't want to take up any more of your time, man. And I was like, sure, you know, and hyperventilating. It- as an adult, I would never do that. I would never go up to a musician and and if I oh, saw really? them at a rest. Well, no, because, you know, I don't think you, you want to be that person intruding on their space or their time. But when I was 16, you know, it's different. And yeah, that's one of the things I write about in my book. Again, my friend Jay Coyle, who moved from New York to Athens, uh, you know, he had this experience of R.E.M. came to his town in Rochester, New York. And after the show, they were out by their van and Jay went up and talked to them. And, you know, he said, I'm thinking of moving to Athens. And he talks about how instead of dismissing him or being short with him, they're really nice to him. And they're like, oh, that's great. You know, and he's. He was, you know, his recollection is that. Number one, they were so friendly to him and it made him really want to move to Athens. But another thing I touch on the book is, again, this whole scene that. REM replacements, Black Flag, all these bands are part of, you know, before the internet and before a lot of things we take for granted today, they built their audiences, you know, the old fashioned way, going town to town, talking to people after shows, you know, and that I remember that era of like, if you played in a band, there was no Facebook or Twitter or YouTube and you had to post your flyer to the telephone pole, right? Yeah, yeah. It could could be very frustrating. It was hard to get the word out. But the flip side of that was that that word of mouth face to face meeting between bands like R.E.M. and their fans was incredibly powerful. 
Oh, is everything, especially in high school, because we get we get hooked on one band and we make tapes for each other. And it's it's like these people were gods to us. It's and we would like know all their songs, and then you know it's like finally be able to see them live was just so intriguing. When when you're yeah, but when what I'm saying ba- is like I never got to meet Ari, and I never met them after a show. But like I did go up and say something like to Bob Mould, like you were great, and he was nice to me for five minutes, and I, that always stuck with me. And when you talk to people who saw R.E.M. when they were playing to dinky little clubs, you know, over and over, night after night, they made the time to stay for two hours and talk to everybody. And every single person that they made time to talk to and be nice to became, you know, like a huge champion of them. And I think. You, you know, what you interested know, me about them in, uh, back in the day was Michael Stipe never really did any of the press. It was uh, well, who was always like uh, my, it was a name, Mike Mills. I think it's Peter Buck, the guitar player. Peter Buck player. would always he, do the press. Uh, yeah. that's well, you know, Peter Buck is just like a motor mouth, very opinionated, very charismatic kind of wannabe. I, I got to meet him about ten years ago, <laughs> yeah. and I got to tell you, you know, the, the my my puberty heart just like when I when I when I shook his hand because I'd seen him at you know I saw them at like big shows. I, I was seeing them on the document tour. So it was just that that might have been the first time I'd seen him and just shaking his hand is just like I was getting reverence from a God because this is because I thought of these guys as gods, you know? Yeah. But uh, to answer your question, I think Peter Buck did do most of the early press because he was kind of a mile a minute talker. He had an opinion about everything and he wasn't afraid to share it. Whereas Michael Stipe was, he did do interviews, but he was a little more shy, obviously. And then I think later, maybe in the late 80s, early 90s, Michael Stipe became more comfortable giving interviews and talking to the press. Yeah, I was doing the YouTube rabbit hole. Um, remember my youth thing that happens every once in a while. And I saw the performance of R.E.M. on um on David Letterman. And I think they, they even did South Central Rain on it, but they didn't have a title for it yet. And, right. for, and usually David Letterman goes up and talks to the lead singer in those days. Right. But Michael Stipe went back and sat down and then he talked to right. uh, Mike and, and um, Peter. Peter. Yeah. And, um, and then Mike came and then, and then Michael Stipe came back up and sang and it's just like, um, I don't know. It's just looking back. It's so endearing, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, I think Michael Stipe is kind of that classic example of a certain kind of personality type where they're incredibly shy uh, off stage, and then they get up on stage and they're very charismatic. Uh, yeah, uh, and you get the sense that maybe some people like Mick Jagger are kind of on all the time, both on and off stage. But Michael Stipe, maybe another person from that era, would have been. Uh, Vanessa Briscoe of Pylon or Natalie Merchant of 10,000 Maniacs, you know, off stage they were very, very shy, but when they got on stage, they turned into something else. Yeah. So intriguing. Have you ever, did? have you done like public speaking and stuff and been in front of large audiences in any way? Who, me? Yeah. Uh, or teaching? I was, I was in debate society at the University of Georgia. There's this debate society called the Denison Society that involved public speaking. I did do that. I taught English for a year at Ole Miss. Uh, so yeah, I've done that. And and how are you like, so you're cool with public speaking? Like there's a lot of people that would rather, they fear uh, public speaking more than they fear death. 
Uh, it's something I kind of learned how to do when I was in the debate club in college, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's, it's maybe not something I would opt to do, but if I have to do it, I could do it. Yeah. 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 Cause it intrigues me. Those people that are shy, but man, they can get up and they can just, they can rip it in front of an audience. Um, it, you know, it's, it's it's funny that your friend in Rochester there. Oh, wow. There we go. You, there were, we go. you were in the complete dark for a second. There. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> we're, we're talking, you're from, you're in Mississippi right now, right? Right. So it's mountain yes. time there. No, central. it's uh it's central. I, I get, yeah. I, yeah, I, I get those mixed up. I, I, when I was sending you the, uh, the invite, I kept saying uh, yeah. East coast and you're like, dude, central. It's central <laughs> yeah. time, man. Central. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I lived in East Coast my whole youth and then been in central time for the last 20 or 30 years. So what was um what was what did you uh what was it about Mississippi where you're like, you know what, I'm I'm dropping anchor here? Well, you know, I was an English major at the University of Georgia, and then I was interested in uh Southern literature and William Faulkner and all that, and that's I came here to Ole Miss to go to grad school to study that. And then I married a woman from Tupelo, Mississippi. So that kind of anchored me here. I'm you know, probably here here to stay uh, because my wife and her family are from Mississippi. So, and it's, I love it here. It's, it's, yeah. it's a, you know, I loved living in Athens in the eighties and I love living here. They're both, you know, uh, beautiful college towns and a kind of little oasis of progressivism in the middle of a red state, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. And then like cool cafes and cool uh, little spots to hang then, obviously, uh, I would think in a college town. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like a college town anywhere. And, you know, Mississippi is a great state. I'm, I don't want to get into a side track about Mississippi, but I'm, I'm happy why not? I, I want to know about Mississippi. <laughs> I, well, I, we I have, have a good. I have group, no uh, reference. What's that? This is not, this is not what we're here to talk about. But we have a good. Yeah, no, we election. no, we are here to talk about that because <laughs> we're here to talk about you. Like you got a book, that's cool, but we're talking about you. So well, so there's there's a big you. election. There's a big election here tomorrow, and uh, yeah. Brandon Presley, who is a distant relative of Elvis Presley, is running for governor, and I will be going out to vote for him, and uh, hopefully he will push statewide politics in a different direction than it's been in, but we'll see. Yeah. What's the politics been in? I mean, I mean, just to be honest, I I, I don't want to get this discussion. No, we don't want to go. No, we're getting sidetracked. Don't worry, but we don't have to do politics. I mean, this is, this is a, this is a deep red state. There's no, Mm. there's no, uh, there's no disputing that. Um, you know, I grew up in North Carolina, and I'm shocked that North Carolina seems to have been taken over by right wing forces. <laughs> I lived oh. in I lived in I lived in Georgia for a good chunk of my life, and Georgia, as as we all know, was has been a huge, I guess, for lack of a better term, battleground state. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, Mississippi's very conservative. Uh, I like aspects of that. There's a lot more about that that I don't like. So hopefully tomorrow. Uh, Hopefully tomorrow the good guys will win and we can maybe take a step in the right direction, but we'll see. Yeah. The, um, yeah, the, the oh, I was thinking about your friend in Rochester because when, when you meet, like, like, when you meet people from the South, 
there's I, I really love the there's there's a there's a formality to the to, to southern culture that, that, that it, there's a little more kindness i think i haven't been to the south yet so i haven't experienced it myself but um i'm i can't i'm really looking forward to like visiting the south and starting to get to know those states just to kind of get a oh, it's, different vibe than san francisco and los angeles and new york you know well it's a it's a slower pace and there's definitely like a veneer of politeness that i think papers over some of the uglier wait is it the, is it a veneer is it false no yes yes and no i would say yes <laughs> and no there's 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 a real sincerity to it but there's also a sense i would say that Maybe like in a Jane Austen novel that manners and politeness are are there to paper over some inequities that lie underneath the surface. Oh, that makes yeah, like because I I there's those people in the world where they're like so polite and so like uh, they seem like they're 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 good and nice, and they tend to be the ones that are like have the most skeletons in their closet. But uh, that's one of the things to getting back to. R.E.M. the ostensible. Why, why are we? No, no, no. It's not. No, no. Now I'm getting. Now friend, I want to make sure. Jay, now I want to make sure we don't talk about the book. Yeah. <laughs> As my friend Jay mentions in the book, uh, he said when he moved from Rochester to Athens in 1985-86, he felt like he had been dropped down into. Like he said, that was a very difficult transition for him. And I think one of the things the guys from R.E.M. struggle with, even though none of them with the exception of Mike Mills had really grown up in the South. They were all transplants. You know, Peter Buck grew up in the Bay area, San Francisco. Oh, and, that's probably why I met him and why local people knew him. And okay. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah. I didn't even know he that. was, he was born in 1956 in California and lived there till sometime around 1970. Uh, so he spent his childhood on the West coast and then he moved to, uh, what's it called roswell georgia outside of atlanta around 1971 so he's not really a southerner per se but one thing they all struggled with was this perception of being from the south and i guess one thing peter buck talked a lot about in interviews at the time was perceptions like people couldn't believe that a band as cool as rem had come from the south because there's this perception that it was all rednecks and backwards and how did this yeah. weird artsy how did this weird artsy cool band come from Athens Georgia of all places you know right now now uh, with, now when you think about that you know cuz you're you're generally from that area was that frustrating for you to have have people miscon have a misconception about where you were from uh i mean that's that's a really I guess that's a question people like Faulkner and other Southern writers have, have wrestled with for a long time. And I don't know if I. How, how does John Hunter wrestle with it? <laughs> You're deflecting, well, man. <laughs> well, I think I think one of the things I think one of the reasons R.E.M. did happen in Athens, uh, even though it was relatively close to Atlanta, which is a major city with a lot of sports and business and culture. I think one of the reasons R.E.M. did happen in Athens, Georgia, was that it was relatively isolated and provincial. And in the era before the Internet, people there really had no option but to make their own entertainment, I think. And that's one but, thing I but, recall. But my original question to you was, 
why, why are you why are you running away from my questions? I was asking okay. about your feelings about the South and how people like it. It is misrepresented because people don't understand it if they don't live there, right? So, how did you feel about that when people would say like there was a quirky band coming out of Athens and oh, they actually have art there? Like, what's what was your vibe when you were thinking about that? Well, it's really frustrating. Like. At some point in the early 2000s, I went out to Portland, Oregon, because my cousin was living out there. And uh, I thought Portland was super cool. I loved Portland. And we also went up to Seattle and kind of up and down the coast. Beautiful. I've been to San Francisco. Yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. You know, I would love to go back. I've only been out there that one time. I loved it. But at the same time, a lot of people I met out there, friends of my cousin or other people, they would find out that I lived in Mississippi and they would make jokes like, Oh, did you ride here in your covered wagon or whatever? <laughs> you know, I, I, yeah. I, or did you, did you walk here barefoot? Just kind of just nonsense. Yeah. Uh, like they've seen the movie Mississippi burning or something. And that's their perception of what Mississippi is. Right. Right. You know, I think, I think there's a real snobbery. And one thing I touch on in the book again, in the context of Ryan's later career is that I think there's a real, problem where progressives in like major cities on the coasts look down on the so-called red states and just completely write them off and yeah. assume that everyone everyone who lives there is a certain way yeah and they're not worth saving they're not redeemable you know and i think in, our, yeah go ahead go ahead and you know like we have an election here tomorrow like we were talking about earlier where the the progressive candidate who wants to accept medicaid from federal government has a real shot at winning and even if he loses it's not like 99 percent of the people in this state support his opponent it's going to be more like six you know 56 to 48 or whatever you know what i mean it's mm -hmm. like there's a lot of there's a lot of people here who don't think the way that i think the rest of the country thinks that we think and on the other hand, as a Southerner, it's really easy to get bitter about all that and get wrapped up in, you know, the kind of nonsense uh, lost cause mythology of the Civil War and things like that and regional pride. And so, you know, it's 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 uh, it, it, it's a weird tension, I guess, in American life, the tension between the South and the rest of the country that's always been there and always will be there, I guess, to some degree. You know, it's yeah. And, and I like even when people use the word fly, a flyover states, um, I that's that started to bug me after a while because I'm like, no, it's not flyover states. Those are, you know, there's there is different cultures in every state. I mean, it, we're like it's kind of lovely to have so many cultures, but people just don't want to go anywhere and understand a culture well i mean from from my point of view i would argue that the south is the cradle of american culture and most of what's good about american culture has come from the south uh, mm -hmm. going back to louis armstrong and bb king and elvis presley and oh yeah you know certainly american music as we know it and love it was born in the south and that goes all the way to rem and yeah. not to mention all the great writers from william faulkner to eudora welty uh, to Flannery O'Connor, you know, there's this weird paradox where this, and maybe it's not a paradox, the South is the most backward region of the country, but yet it, it's produced all this incredible culture. And I think a lot of that is due to the fact that uh, it's been so backwards. Uh, 
you know, you, you I like John Updike and John Cheever and Northern writers, but you get something more interesting, I think, in the South. But yeah, that's I mean, uh, I, go ahead. And REM, you know, again, they were very much a part of that. They had that Southern mystique, for lack of a better word. You know, the cover of the first album is a picture of a field of kudzu, you know. Uh, and I think that played really well in the rest of the country because the, the rest of the country can look down on the South, but they can also romanticize it. And I think that whole thing of we come from the land of kudzu and we're from Athens and we're from the South, I think that, that served REM well in a lot of ways. It made them seem more exotic to people in New York or San Francisco than they might have seemed if they had come from uh, Chicago, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting. I wonder, I mean, because yeah, by by the time I started to get to know them, I, it was very clear that they were from Athens. And I, at some point, I wonder if that was really in their press kit and that, were, that the publicists were also like, oh, wait, we have something here. Let's push it because this is people are finding this interesting. You know, well, and again, I would say the history of music from Liverpool with the Beatles to uh, Macon, Georgia, with the Allman Brothers and other groups in the seventies to Athens to Seattle mm -hmm. in the nineties. You know, you, you you get these little places, and again, I would argue that most of them, like Liverpool and Athens, are relatively isolated and provincial, and there's just not a lot to do. And I, I think that's a huge part of why the whole Athens music thing happened. And again, it gets back to there not being an internet. Uh, you know, uh, you and I are of a certain age. You probably remember when there were only three channels on the television. There was no, yeah, there was no VCR. There was no DVD player. If your favorite band was on Saturday night live and you missed it, you missed it. There was no way to, <laughs> Wasn't the, there was, there's the loveliness to that too. Yeah, I mean, there's there's two sides to every coin, and and you know, it was good that it made things more special when you did see them because everything wasn't at your fingertips all the time. But I think that's a huge part of why REM happened and why Pylon Love Tractor the B52s happened. These people were in this town. There was nothing on TV. There was no internet. You know, a lot of people would argue that Foreigner and all that music was terrible. You know, I still like it, but you know, there's certainly a perception. That oh, I I was such a like I became a college radio DJ, and then I was just like the snob. I was an absolute snob, yeah. and then For um, sure. and then after a while, you kind of go back and go, oh man, I missed out on some good music that <laughs> I could have seen that yeah. band, but I was a snob because I wouldn't go see you know certain genres or whatever. Well, I never really stopped liking Foreigner, but or REO Speedwagon or any of that stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, but at the same time, there was sort of a pressure once REM and the Smiths came out that, oh, you can't like that. I mean, that was very right. real. Yeah. But my point is that, you know, this thing happened in Athens because it was sort of a backwater provincial town in the middle of nowhere. And there was literally nothing to do. Even when I moved to Athens in 1986, when, you know, the, the music scene had purportedly exploded, and all these bands, there really was not a lot to do. It was, I mean, there were two or three clubs and you go see bands, but it, you know, your choices of what to do were pretty limited, you know? And that, I think that's, again, part of why going to see these bands when I was 16, like Who's Kadir Hever, it was so incredible because it was, you know, you couldn't go on YouTube and type Husker do and see a video of them playing. Right. Right. They had to come to, they had to come to your town and you had to go see them. And there was, 
that was incredibly frustrating at times. I think for those bands who are sort of kicking against like, we're not on MTV, we're not on most real radio stations. It's almost impossible for people in the middle of nowhere in Kansas to hear us. But at the same time, it was very powerful because if they did come to your town and you did go to see them, it was really special. Right. So, and we had, we'd go to the record stores and um, we, we were looking for the next thing. I mean, I kind of remember yeah. just listening to the guy at the counter and then you, you just get this, okay, I have no idea what songs are on here, but he's, he recommended this to me. And then all of a sudden you're, you, you're, you're a fan of Sonic youth and they're not being played anywhere. And it's just like, yeah, well, that's the thing I write about in the book again, uh, to relate all this back to the book. Yeah, I don't think well, I mentioned yeah, this particular to the book. <laughs> I don't think I mentioned this particular anecdote in the book, but I was like 15 and had just discovered REM, and I pick up an, an issue of Musician Magazine or whatever, and there's an interview with Peter Buck, and in passing he says, "Oh, I just got the new Violent Femmes record, right?" Or I yeah. like that record, and so I had no idea who the Violent Femmes were. I'd never heard them on the radio, but I go to the record store and I buy that record because Peter Buck mentioned it, you know, and that was. He had the power being an R.E.M. who had sort of broken through the mainstream. He was kind of like that cool record store clerk, but for the whole country. Yep. And my friend Jay and other people, countless people I've talked to, you know, they're like, I bought the replacements record because Peter Buck mentioned it. Or I bought the Husker Du record because Peter Buck mentioned them. You know, so yeah. he was in a position and, you know, you couldn't hear a lot of these bands on the radio. Uh, right. Did so, you, uh, you know, I, did you uh, read the um, bio of uh, the replacements? It came out a few years ago. I think, um, what was it called? Bob Mayer. I Trouble can't Boys. remember. Him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where they were, where the replacements were talking about because they they were frustrated they weren't getting the hype that REM was getting. They were they they thought that they were on the same level, and um, and and, and at the same time, I mean, I'm a, I'm more of a fan of the replacements than REM. But it's just like you can you can see that their personalities were just so implosive and so like it was almost too much where um, I mean, now that now that I've been around the writing and film scenes for a while, it's just like if somebody's a just a pain in the ass and then there's someone who's nice, you, you're right. just like, I'd, ra I'd rather work for you with with you 12 hours a day for the next six sure. months. And, it, and, yeah, I and one. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing Bob Mayer, who wrote that book, does a great job pointing out is how the replacements were just not very good at playing that game of schmoozing DJs and schmoozing writers and at being uh, nice. I think because I think they, yeah. I think they were pretty intolerable. Oh. When I look back at like some of the stuff oh. where you know they were just like, "We're smoking cigarettes, we're in your face," and it's just like that's kind of cool for a while, but dudes, you got to kind of be nice. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think REM could be not nice as well, but they were better at like, okay, it's time to go to the radio station and talk to this person mm. and and at least pretend to be nice. Yeah. But I, th I think a lot of people forget on that point. There's a lot of nuances to all this. The replacements were signed to Warner Brothers in 1985. You know, Tim, they were on Sire. And Husker Du also signed to Warner Brothers around that time. So they were on Warner Brothers a good two or three years before REM. Mm. Yeah, the replacements. Remember the replacements on Saturday Night Live in 1986. Do you remember that? Yeah, and then didn't they get banned yeah. after that? Yes, that the, yes, yeah. and that's to your point. But 
REM were not on Saturday Night Live until 1991. Uh, oh, I wow. think a lot of people don't realize that. They were never on Saturday Night Live in the 80s. Yeah. Replacements did get opportunities and they did get a leg up on REM in that they signed to, you know, basically Warner Brothers in 1985-86. Tim came out and they get a slot on Saturday Night Live five years before REM got their chance. And then they blew it because they were wasted and apparently, you know, Bob Mayer's account trashed their dressing room and did all the rock and roll things. And then they got banned from the show and never invited back. Yeah, it's... You know. it's and were they about the same age as REM or, or are they? Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. They were they were they were totally peers. And Peter Buck and Westerberg were tight. They were friends. You know, Peter Buck plays on Let It Be. You know, I guess the cliche and I touch on that in the book is that REM were the Beatles and the replacements were the Stones. Huh. Uh, I certainly sub subscribe to that theory, but sort of being the Stones and being the bad boys didn't quite work for the replacements like it worked for the the real Stones yeah 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 it's but their placements got yeah. their shot you know they got that snl slot and i remember what we we're talking about earlier i made a point to be in front of the television to watch it because we didn't have a vcr by then and yeah yeah it's it's weird we had to be rich in the 80s to have a vcr yeah we didn't have one yeah. in 1986 i know that and yeah. uh so i made a point to be there to watch it and i thought it was thrilling you know i thought it was incredible but I guess the powers that be at SNL did not find it amazing. And, you know, if they could have just come out and rocked really hard and then maybe not trashed the dressing room or done whatever else they did. If they just didn't yeah, drink, I think if they, if they were just not drunk, I think there would have been a better uh, situation. Yeah. Well, I mean, Bob Mayer wrote that whole book about it and he did a better job of trying to analyze it than I ever could. I mean, that's, that's an incredible book. It's one of the best, biographies of anyone i've ever read i'm really just like hats off to him i thought the research in that book and sort of getting to the bottom of what made the replacements tick was incredible uh yeah but i like that time i snuck out of my dorm room and went to see the replacements i think it was in february of 85 at the cat's cradle in chapel hill and i was 17 and they were absolutely trashed they were wasted you know it's one of these infamous drunk shows and it was right. incredible they were they were incredible it was like they were drunk but it was incredible they yeah. were just whatever it is about rock and roll you know the rebelliousness whatever you know and it's all cliche but the attitude the energy the enthusiasm the charisma they were so good and i guess what i'm trying to say is you can't you can say, well, I wish they didn't drink and I wish they behaved better. But in a way, that was part of what made them great. You right. I, mean? I, I wish the, I wish there was a point where they kind of stopped and grew up a little bit. Yeah. Well, I saw them the next year. They came back to Raleigh and they played a skating rink. And I went and it was kind of boring uh, because they were on better behavior. <laughs> and they were they were they were still good. They were still yeah. very good. But, you know, they're playing the skating rink because, again, getting back to alternative rock, you know, it's like they weren't going to be playing the local Coliseum. Right. Right. So it was this kind of ad hoc venue where it's like, OK, we'll rent out the local skating rink and promote their placements. And now this year, there's like instead of there being 150 people there, there's probably like 750 people there. Right. Yeah. And they're relatively sober. 
and they're still good but that whole like teetering on the edge of chaos thing that i'd seen the year before at the cat's cradle was not there yeah and, yeah you know i just i don't know how you square the circle of them behaving better without robbing them of that kind of spark that made them the replacements i, I, I don't know if there's any way out of that we had a we had a band in san francisco called the dwarves and whenever yeah. you see the dwarves you, the you, there was going to be violence it's just like yeah. it, when you went to a show you knew a bottle can like smash you on the head and yeah it was just it, it was always chaos and then when it wasn't chaos we were like i mean they were they're a good band live they're they're tight but at the same time, when there's when as things got like as as they as it progressed into like later years, and I think the last time I saw them might have been around 2000, 2001. Um, there's kind of things you can't do anymore because people will sue you. Right. <laughs> it's just like, and it's uh, and it's the and as when we were young, it was almost like that. Just just to be in that environment and the you know, and we're all just drinking and getting drunk, and then we're just kind of like, oh great, now we're gonna see this car crash what's going to happen you know when are they when are they going to toss their instruments at people in the crowd sure i mean and, and that's i guess part of you know rock and roll is this kind of adolescent art form made by angry adolescent people and you can't be that forever i think pete townsend famously complained in the 70s there was a gig in madison square garden where he almost quit because it's like 1975 and these people in the audience are screaming at him, Pete, smash your guitar, smash your guitar. You know, like you said about the doors, what had been like a organic thing, maybe 10 years earlier had now become this ritual where he was expected to do it. Yeah. Whether, whether he felt like doing it or not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the replacements definitely wrestle with that where I did see them on one of those nights where they were drunk and they were amazing. And you can see why that myth around them grew. But then it's like you just can't sustain that seven years into your career, or if you do, you're going to be dead, like Bob Stinson eventually. You know, there's right. I don't know how you how you get out of that. What um that trap? And, and so in the in the town that you're in now, do you, do you see um do you see like a young vibe or you like good good bands starting to rise up? Is is there is there like uh, artistic energy that's um that still rises out of uh, these cities in the south? Well, when I moved here in the 90s, there was this band here called the Neckbones that were as good as their placements uh, that, you know, didn't sell as many records as their placements. But uh, they're one of their key members. Tyler Keith is still here, still making records. Uh, so he's, you know, he's an incredible musician. The Neckbones were an incredible band that, for whatever reason, never achieved the replacements level of success. But, yeah, of course, there's good music here i mean one thing when i moved here i'd been in athens in the 80s and i was so kind of spoiled by living in athens it was like the center of alternative america so tuesday night i could go to the club and see throwing muses or see the jesus and mary chain or see galaxy 500 i don't know if you remember any of these bands oh yeah yeah i saw iggy, i saw iggy pop was it iggy pop with jesus and mary chain and I think the Booker was really trying to screw with our heads because Iggy Pop was like bouncing all over the place, and then Jesus to Mary Chan come out with there. Well, when I was in school in Athens, you know, in large part because of REM, I remember walking around downtown one day, and the Jim Reed from the Jesus to Mary Chan was walking around with his gorgeous French girlfriend, and uh, 
that was just kind of how it was. You could bands like that were coming through all the time because of REM. So you, there wasn't just a great local music scene, but you could go. See, I remember seeing Throwing Muses, I think, at the Uptown Lounge uh, early on in their career. And it was just like absolutely incredible. When I came to Oxford, there was a lot less college rock happening here but there was this huge blues scene with rl burnside and junior kimbrough i don't know if you do you know them no i don't but well this uh there was these kind of older blues men in mississippi and and uh there were still juke joints and places out in the country you could go see them and i kind of got real heavily into that for a while going to see these blues artists and at some point in the 90s i pretty much listened to jazz only for about five years because i i was really not down with nirvana and pearl jam and all that i, I kind of gave up listening yeah. to rock music for a while when all that hit uh as a child of the 80s when nirvana and all that happened i was just like the replacements in husker do died for this you know i, I, I didn't get it at all <laughs> i remember um, i remember we like nirvana would come and play these like small gigs and we just and we wouldn't even go to the show because we just found them boring. We'd go see other bands, and it, and it was just yeah. and then they blew up, and then now and then now I I go back and listen to those records and go, oh man, I, I should have saw them at least once. What was I thinking? Well, you want to talk about you want to talk about snobbery? I mean, I was a snob and I guess still am because Nirvana came and played the forty watt in Athens at the very tail end of my time there, and I didn't go because I'd heard the record Bleach and I thought it was awful. Yeah, the Bleach, and, I, Bleach was just kind of, I think the only song on there I liked, I, I don't even know if Dive was on there, but I remember have, we had that at the college radio station before Nevermind came out, and it was just, well, they were kind of like a, oh yeah, that rock band. <laughs> I guess the infamous song on that record that everybody likes is about a girl because it's supposedly Beatlesque, but oh, yeah, the rest yeah. of it, the rest of it to me sounded like Motley Crue riffs with sort of this alternative guy singing on top of it. I'd I didn't like it then and I don't like it now. And I remember as the eighties started to turn the nineties, the whole music scene was shifting in a way that I just couldn't understand, like Soundgarden, Faith No More, yeah, Jane's Addiction. Why well, saw Nirvana. Faith No More when Chuck Mosley was still the singer, the before Mike Patton joined. And okay. what and in and one night I was I was at another Iggy Pop show and I saw the drummer from Faith No More and drunk 18-year-old me walks I'm like dude, what happened to Chuck Mosley, man? I was so mad that this other guy took over. <laughs> the drummer's just like, I'm just trying to enjoy an Iggy Pop show, dude. As a child of the 80s, you know, like I liked R.E.M. because they played the jangly Rickenbacker guitars, right? I mean, that's what I liked. And when all these heavier bands, I guess even to an extent, I liked Dinosaur Jr., but they were sort of a harbinger of this heaviness to come, right? Yeah, yeah. When Dinosaur Jr., Soundgarden, Jane's Addiction, Faith No More, Nirvana, all that started happening, I I just I didn't know what to make of it. It's it was not something I was interested in, uh, for sure. When uh, in San Francisco, we had a really great uh, like they called it like lo-fi garage rock scene. And that's and it, for some odd reason that I was just at all those shows when the whole uh, grunge thing was happening. The I was at shows where it was like the Mummies, Teen Generate, the Makers, and it's just it was just and it was just great. Like it was just fantastic. And I, I you know the rip offs and all. It's just it, it was so like 
it was kind of local and kind of also like Japanese bands were really that's when we started getting the five, six, seven, eights and other bands like that. I remember them, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's just and that that's the kind of where I went through the nineties. And then I got into a, like industrial and noise towards the end of the nineties. It's just it's so funny how um and then now I'm just open to all of it. I get excited to buy a Fleetwood Mac album and I get excited to buy a Melvin's record. <laughs> Well, I guess in hindsight, I would have to say that that whole Seattle thing and Aberdeen thing that Nirvana and all those groups came out of, it was, I would say, you know, it was like Athens. It was an organic thing. And all these kids, you know, Aberdeen talk about nothing to do. from Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, so I think a lot of the same forces that led Athens to happen, led Seattle to happen. I just personally... You know, Nirvana had a song, I think, on that album, Incesticide, called Aero Zeppelin, and it was supposed to be a joke. But I think all those bands, and especially Pearl Jam, had this sort of 70s hard rock influence that I just couldn't get down with. And Yeah, I can get down with it if it's closer to Black Sabbath. Yeah, I don't like Black Sabbath, just to be honest. I mean, I'll, oh, I love them. I, I guess my 70s taste goes about as far as Led Zeppelin and stops there, but yeah. Anyway, I I I, uh, I struggled to deal with the grunge revolution, and I think R.E.M. did to a degree, which is why you get Monster, which is this weird sort of, is it a grunge record? Is it not a grunge record? Huh. But it, you know, that sold real well at the time, and it superficially seemed to be like in sync with what was coming out of Seattle because it was very loud guitars, but it. At the same time, it was kind of more of an ironic take on that kind of loud music, I would argue, than, than say, Pearl Jam, who I think were 100% sincere about, like, we dig Zeppelin and The Who and Black Sabbath, right? Yeah. But, you know, I think R.E.M., of course, Automatic for the People, right as Nirvana was taking off, was equally huge, or almost equally as huge. Certainly, Losing My Religion came out a few months before Teen Spirit, and it was you know, I would say equally as big a song, but. And that was the first that... time they, oh, sorry, that was the first time they lip synced on video because I remember their whole yeah. thing in the, we were like, we are not going to lip sync right. on our music videos. And then they lip synced on losing my religion. And then that goes. boom. <laughs> yeah. And I remember that, you know, MTV played that song like every two hours. It seemed like, yeah. you know, MT MTV got behind that song 110%. And, uh, you know, one of the myths I think R.E.M. have built around themselves is that, like, we never, no one ever expected Losing My Religion to be a hit. How did this song become a hit? And I, I think to me, if you listen to Out of Time, the record it came from, it's like blatantly obvious that Losing My Religion is the hit, right? And it's a great uh, John, song. Yeah, well, John Keane, who produced it, there's an interview with him where he talks about when they recorded it, he was there in the studio and he was like, the hair on the back of my neck stood up, you know, like I knew this was going to be the song. And I think they knew that too. And I think that's uh, Peter Buck had actually written that song for the green album, but they held it back for out of time because I think they knew they had something special. And then, like you said, they took the step of making this pretty expensive video and lip syncing and doing all the things they'd said they are never going to do. And then the song becomes a hit, right? A massive hit, uh, like a generation defining hit. Yeah, but but because of their alternative roots and the scene they came up in, I think they have to engage in this charade of, oh, it was a song with a mandolin and nobody ever could have predicted 
if this was going to be a hit, right? You know, right. that's the same kind of thing that tormented Nirvana was this whole alternative ethos. And then that collides into the fact that all of a sudden you're selling 10 million records, right? And I don't yeah. think Kirk, I don't think Kirk Cobain ever really figured out a way to square that circle. I don't know how uh, anyone does it with the fame thing. I, I see it in, you know, I see it in Los Angeles where, you know, one day it's just like, boom, you st- all these kids become famous. And it's just like, of course, everyone's on drugs because it's not, you know, yeah, it's happy for a second. But at the same yeah, time, sure. you, you've got people looking at you in a very different way as you walk down the street. Like, I, even yeah. it's, it's just it's it's probably worse than never becoming famous. There's so much kind of internal work you need to do, you know, I know 100 percent. But what but the point I'm trying to make is that being famous i think we can all agree carries with it a lot of pitfalls but the guys and the stones and the beatles and led zeppelin all wanted to be famous and were open about it whereas by the 80s you get this alternative ethos that comes out of punk where it's like all these guys paul westerberg peter buck they're incredibly driven bob mold and they do want to be famous just like Keith Richards and Pete Townsend and John Lennon all wanted to be famous, but because of this punk rock ethic that they have, they can't admit it. That's you're not allowed to want to be famous. And I think all those bands wrestled with that, you know, to one degree or another. And then it culminates with Kurt Cobain, who in large part, because of the work REM who's could do in their placements put in of touring the U S for 10 years and building up sort of priming the pump for this kind of music to become popular instead of having to make five or six albums before they have their losing my religion moment, Nirvana makes two albums before they have their losing my religion moment. And the guys in REM have commented that if their second album had blown up like losing religion, they'd probably be dead too. Yeah. You know, but you know, there should be a manual. There should be a book that helps. Well, there is no manual, but REM had a decade to slowly ramp up to becoming that popular. And I think, they were better able to survive it than Nirvana in large part because it didn't happen literally overnight for Nirvana, but it happened a heck of a lot quicker than it happened for REM. And they didn't have seven or eight years of like trying to figure out the manual themselves. Right. Right. Yeah. The, the manual that no one writes that one of these days I'm going to write a, a, a book on uh, everything I've ever done wrong in publishing and film. So you don't have to. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. Well, what? I don't think, you know, obviously anyone who hits like REM or Nirvana or even the replacements, I don't, I don't think, you know, they're children when they start. I don't think anyone who's in their early twenties is probably going to handle, uh, handle that very well. Even, yeah, even a little bit, John, yeah. thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Tony.
You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz.